Lord on a regular and daily basis. James chapter number 1. James chapter number 1. There is such a wealth of truth in this passage that I uh, just cannot plumb the depths of all the, the riches of the truths from James chapter number 1. Such a relevant passage to us as we face trials and tribulations. Suffering is a part of life. It's something that we have even been called to in the will of God. I know it's hard for us to understand that. It's hard for us sometimes to accept that truth. But as James writes to the 12 tribes scattered abroad, he addresses this area of trials of suffering. No doubt, because that is immediately what is on the hearts and minds of these Jews who have scattered abroad. Believing Jews, we know that there will be appeals even to those who are unsaved, but primarily his audience is believing Jews who have had to flee because of persecution. We can go to the book of Acts and we can see the persecutions that were started by Saul. We can see the ones that were started by Herod Agrippa. We know that the Roman Empire, the emperor, I believe it was Claudius, had even uh, later uh, persecuted the Jews and sent them out of uh, Rome sometime later. You know, the book of James was one of the earlier books uh, from uh, the historical records and from our understanding of the times in which James wrote by the inspiration of God. Nevertheless, there was suffering that was near and dear to the hearts of these Jews. Having suffered persecution, in many cases having left their homes, their comforts, we know from Acts 7 that Stephen was stoned to death. We know that Saul uh, breathed out threatenings and slaughter upon the church before he was converted. We know in Acts 12 there was persecution that even resulted in the death of James the Apostle. Though this is James, the half-brother of Jesus, who got saved later in life. James the Apostle was martyred in that persecution. Peter was able to escape imprisonment by the providential, supernatural act of God. But through these various persecutions, the Jews had scattered abroad. The twelve tribes that James mentions, obviously a reference to the twelve tribes of Israel. And they had suffered, in some cases losing everything, traveling with basically just the, the clothes on their back and whatever they could carry, maybe in some bags or on the back of a donkey or a camel. Scattered abroad throughout the Greco-Roman Empire, the Roman Empire. And we know that they had suffered. So no doubt James was trying to encourage them, trying to help them, and trying to help them find the joy of the Lord in the midst of suffering, in the midst of trials, in the midst of tribulations. And again, I know that goes against our human thinking. It goes against our natural state of mind. And that's why we have to count it all joy. We have to consider it. We have to make up our minds. We have to make a conscious decision with the help of the Lord and by the grace of Jesus Christ to evaluate, to count, to consider our sufferings, our trials, and our tribulations with a joyful attitude. We looked a couple weeks ago at this passage and we brought up four imperatives, four imperative words, and then four essential statements or principles for victory during trials. Those four words were found in verse number two, count. Verse number three, know. Verse four and verses nine through 11, let. And then the word ask in verses five through eight. 
we began to look at these four essentials for victory, for overcoming, for maturing, and for growing through trials. We saw, first of all, a joyful attitude. Count it all joy. As we count it all joy, as we deal with our trials, as we evaluate our trials with a joyful attitude, we have to accept the fact that trials are to be expected. We looked at a couple weeks ago, John 16 and verse 33, where Jesus promises his disciples and us by the preservation of his word that in the world ye shall have tribulation. We read elsewhere in Scripture that born, man is born, excuse me, man is born unto trouble as the sparks fly upward. Even in Acts 14, Paul told the young disciples, through much tribulation, ye shall enter into the kingdom of God. First Peter 4 and verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened unto you. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 13 speaks of trials being common to man. We sometimes think of our trials as being unique. We're the only ones going through this, when actually there are others probably who have gone before us who have suffered the same thing, someone else who may have suffered worse, or those who are going through that same trial with us, and we can have together a ministry and empathy and have an outreach, even through those who also, sometimes we refer to them as maybe support groups, I know that there is uh, a, a man that we follow who is a missionary in Hong Kong who lost his wife. We watched as she suffered through many months of cancer and passed away. And he has had a ministry to men who have lost their wives and has had opportunity to uh, reach out to them and to minister to them. And he has a tremendous testimony, uh, though he, he lost his wife after they had five children together and she passed away in her, in her 40s. We know that trials are common to man. We know that we all go through them, and we can expect them. And we fall into them. That word or that phrase, fall into, speaks of encountering, coming across. We don't go out of our way looking for trials. At least, I don't think most of us do. I don't think that we go to a particular, get, go into a particular day or a particular week or month and say, okay, hmm, what can I have for trouble this week? We don't do that, but we know that they are going to come. We're going to encounter them. They are going to, we're going to come across them. And we have to accept the fact that God is going to use them and that we can evaluate them and we can count them all joy. As hard as that is, humanly speaking. And they are diverse. He says, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Temptations, trials, they take all kinds of different shapes, colors, and sizes, it seems. This word diverse has, is the word various, also translated various. It speaks of in 1 Peter 1 and verse 6, manifold temptations. It literally, in the context, in the first century, it would be a word that would reference the very colored yarn as there would be a seamstress with a weaver's loom making a beautiful multicolored garment or rug and those colors would be weaved together. And sometimes our trials are various, they are diverse. They are often uh, in different types and different shapes and sizes and lengths. And some are, it seems, more difficult than others. 
We refer to our trials, our temptations, our sufferings. We refer to them as afflictions. Sometimes they are consequences of sin. Sometimes the chastening hand of God is a reason for the suffering. We know that all suffering, that all trials, are a result in general of the fall. There would not be pain. There would not be death. There would not be the suffering in life if it weren't for sin in general. Because when Adam and Eve sinned, and we sinned in Adam as representative of the human race, we sometimes think, well, if I were there, I wouldn't have done what Adam and Eve did. No, every single one of us would have done the same thing, if not sooner or, or worse. We're all sinners by nature and by choice. And because of sin, there is suffering. But we are going to talk some more about the overcoming of suffering and trials and tribulations as we go through this passage. And that's through Jesus Christ who conquered sin and death and suffering and uses it and overcomes it for his glory. But we have challenges in life. We have obstacles, adversities. There are enemies that we're to love. (laughs) We're to love our neighbors and we're to love our enemies. Sometimes our suffering, our trials comes in the form of a person. There's thorns in the flesh, as Paul would describe in 1 Corinthians. There's chastisement. There's those who build our faith in a way of opposition or challenge. We are looking on Wednesday nights at Bible characters, and we're going to be talking about, we reference Diotrephes and how he was an obstacle. He was one in the church that John was going to address and he had Gaius already there in the church who was going to have to confront a Diotrephes who loved to have the preeminence and was hindering the church. Sometimes our trials and our temptations, our sufferings come in the form of a person. As I've referenced before, my mom, as I would sometimes come home and complain about the kids in school, and there was one particular kid in school who I really struggled with, and my, my mom would, and my dad would help me in knowing how to deal with him and having the right attitude toward him and how to love my enemy. And my mom would sometimes refer to him as a faith builder. And that has stuck with me through the years. I have met many faith builders. But what was my mom doing? What were my mom and dad doing? They were helping me to see that person not so much as an enemy, but as someone that God was using in my life, and I had to have the right attitude. And I'm thankful for that teaching, that, that training, though it was not always pleasant, and though it sometimes is hard, and even to this day, sometimes there's opposition in the form of a person, and we have to deal with them according to scriptural principles. There's persecutions that come. We're seeing that more and more, even in our own culture. There are places around the world that, are, that Christians are in great duress, that are suffering similar to how These Jews were suffering in the book of James in the first century. There's financial trials. There's physical trials. There's emotional trials. Forms of sorrow and sadness. Various trials. Diverse temptations. But God is faithful through them all. We have to have a joyful attitude. We have to count. We have to evaluate. We have to consider these Trials, these sufferings, with joy, to evaluate them in the light of what God is doing. God has an eternal perspective. We often have just a temporal 
physical, earthly perspective. But we need to have an eternal perspective, a heavenly perspective. We need to seek first the kingdom of God. We need to keep Christ preeminent even through our trials as Jesus did in Hebrews 12 and verse number 2, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross and despised the shame. We have to set our affections on things above and not on things on the earth. We have to value character over comfort. We have to value the spiritual over the material and the physical. We talked Wednesday night about Gaius in 3 John who was spiritually prosperous, though physically, financially, there were some challenges, there were some hardships, John recognized Gaius for his spiritual prosperity. He acknowledged that and recognized him for that. And even through our physical hardships, our financial hardships, when it seems at times that everything is taken away from us, we can still be spiritually prosperous like a Gaius. We can say like Job in chapter 23 in verse number 10, He knoweth the way that I take, that when he has tried me, I shall come forth as gold. We don't like the pruning process, do we? We don't like the purging process. The refining fire can be tough. It can be challenging. But we have to approach our trials and our sufferings with joy. We have to have a joyful attitude. We have to make a conscious choice by the grace of God, with God's help, to count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. And that brings us to this second word, no, and to this second principle, an understanding mind. We talked about a couple weeks ago that faith is always tested. Abraham had great faith, but did he not also have to take his son Isaac to that mountain and follow the command of God? And then, of course, we know God supernaturally intervened and divinely provided a ram. But Abraham's faith was tested, not just there, but in other ways. Joseph, his faith was tested. We could go on and on with examples from the scriptures. Our faith has to be tested to prove its genuineness, to prove that we are truly trusting God. God tests us sometimes to bring out the best in us, to produce within us Christ's likeness. As Romans 8, we often like verse 28, and it's obviously a great verse that we should use in our trials. We know that God works all things together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. But whom he foreknow, he also predestinated that we might be conformed to the image of his Son. God wants to produce Christ's likeness in us. He wants to produce within us the fruit of the Spirit, the love, the joy, the peace, the long-suffering, the goodness, the gentleness, the meekness, the temperance, the faithfulness. And many times those aren't produced within us unless it's through trials and suffering. I wish that we could sit on the couch and eat potato chips and watch our favorite TV shows and build strong muscles and be able to run a mini-marathon or a marathon by just sitting around and doing nothing. It doesn't work that way, though, does it? Especially as we get older and we get flabbier and our muscles don't get toned quite as easily and our lungs don't breathe in the air and exhale as much as we wished and we run up and down the basketball court and we're wheezing after one trip down and back and we wonder what happened. Our 
muscles, our lungs need exercise. I remember when my dad had open heart surgery and we walked into the hospital and like within 24 hours they had him out of the bed and they had him walking down the hallway. It was incredible. I couldn't believe what, but they were saying he's got to get his circulation. He's got to get his lungs going. He's got to have his, uh, his, his body up. And he had had that surgery and he had had those tubes on and we couldn't believe when we first saw him. And then the next day they're, they're up and they have him out of bed at least for a short walk sitting up. We know that we have to go to the gym. We have to exercise. We have to go on walks. We have to watch our diet. All these things, muscles aren't going to get stronger unless they meet resistance. It's that resistance that builds the muscles. It's that running and the exercise of those lungs that builds that endurance. So suffering is necessary. God wants to produce Christ-likeness in us. Faith has to be tested, but testing, we have to remember, works for us, not against us. The trying of our faith, in verse number 3, this has to do with proving This is also found in 1 Peter 1 and verse 7. The trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold that perisheth. It may not seem like much at the time, but the final appraiser of our faith is God himself. And he desires for our faith to be of more value than gold. God wants our faith. God wants our life to produce a Christ likeness. And God is the one who ultimately does the appraising, who does the approving. And God is testing our faith, and he wants what is best for us, for his glory, for our good. The testing, the diverse temptations, the various trials, they're not to be used against us, but they are being used for us, for our good and for God's glory. 2 Corinthians 4 and verse 17, for our light affliction. Do you ever read that and you think, how can Paul write that? Light affliction? Even with what, all that Paul was going through, all the suffering, the persecutions, the physical duress, he could write, I know he was writing by the inspiration of God, but still he wrote as a man of God saying, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. That joyful attitude produces within us an understanding mind. And we know that God is working through this trial, through this temptation through this suffering and we see also that trials when rightly evaluated trials when rightly evaluated and rightly appropriated they grow us they help us to mature this word patience we see in verse number three has to do with endurance of keeping going when the going gets tough It has to do with a courageous endurance or perseverance in the midst of suffering and difficulty. Impatience and immaturity go together. But so does patience and maturity. Hebrews 6 and verse number 12 talks about patience through patience, through endurance. Through patience and faith, we inherit the promises. And it is immaturity that is often manifested and evidenced by God to have it now. I want it. Give it to me now. And we live in a culture of instant gratification, of convenience and comfort. And we know that our children, and sometimes we as adults, as big children, we want now. We want our answers. And we've got to have, and one of the problems in the, the indebtedness of our culture is the fact that we have to have everything 
right now. We're not willing to work for it and wait for it and save for it. And it's a sign of immaturity. Impatience and immaturity often go together. But patience and maturity go together. As we trust the Lord, as we wait on Him, as we allow Him to work, we see God growing our faith. We see Him making us more like Him. And sometimes that pruning, that purging, that suffering, it can seem difficult. It can seem impossible at times. But again, that's why we have to approach, we have to count our suffering with joy. We have to count it all joy. And that produces then an understanding mind. We know. And then that brings us to a third word and the third principle. The word let, which speaks to a surrendered will. Verse number four, but let patience have her perfect work that she may be perfect and entire, wanting nothing. God wants us to be fully mature. He wants us to be fully equipped. He wants us to be grown up in our faith. He wants to produce Christ-likeness in every area of our life. 2 Timothy 3 and verse number 17, we know that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, mature, thoroughly furnished unto all good works, thoroughly equipped unto all good works. That's what God wants to produce within us. As we apply the principles, the commands, and the promises of God's Word through our sufferings, through our trials, through our temptations, He equips us. He thoroughly furnishes us. We moved to Lafayette a couple years ago. We uh, ended up, by the grace of God, and we're thankful for our home. We love our home, and we found out that we didn't have enough furniture for our house. So little by little, we went to furniture stores, and as God provided, we bought a couch or we bought a chair or we bought a cabinet or we bought this or bought that until the home was thoroughly furnished. So every need was met. And then all of a sudden the boys started growing and they were outgrowing their beds. And then we were going from a twin or a double to a queen. And so there's all this furnishing. Yesterday, I'm not a golfer. I I golf three or four times a year. I, I golf mostly for the fellowship, because I'm not much of a golfer. But there's a fully equipping of a golfer, being able to get the tee shot, and then whatever they call the shot out there on the fairway, <laughs> and then there's the approach, and then there's the putting. And I don't know how they describe all that. In baseball and basketball, they talk about four tool players and five tool players. I don't know if that's the case in golf, and you're a five-tool golfer, if you can hit all those shots, and uh, you are good at every single one of those. But you know how it is when you're out there, and you want to be good in every aspect of the game. It's probably true in music. It's probably true in a lot of other areas, but you want to be good in every aspect. In baseball, they talk about being able to run and be able to catch and being able to throw and being able to hit. And there's all these different aspects of the game, all these different aspects of maybe a job that you do or a hobby or an interest. Fully equipped, good in every area. And God wants to produce Christ-likeness in every area of our life. I remember years ago, I was trying to counsel with a, a young man, and he said, I'm a really good Christian. I just have this one area that I, I just cannot seem to get victory. And he said, I've just kind of given up on it. 
And I've just decided that I'll be a good Christian in every other area, but not this one. And I looked at him and I said, seriously? I said, you, you think it's okay when God said, be holy, for I am holy, that he meant be holy except in this area or that area? Did he give us an exception? And as a matter of fact, what happens when we start letting one area of our life go and it becomes the Achilles heel, it becomes the chink in our armor, it's the one area that God, excuse me, that Satan uses that we haven't given over to God, that we haven't gotten the victory in, and that's where Satan attacks and that's the weak point, and then it affects other areas. I was trying to give this young man counsel and saying that one area, you think it's one area, but it's affecting everything else. And you think you're such a strong Christian And you think that you just have this one exception, but that one exception can ruin everything. And it's like having maybe a a bunch of snakes loose in your house, and you say, well, it's only one poisonous one. You say, what? That's ridiculous. Well, I just have one that's poisonous. The rest are just fine. They'll just slither around. We have one snake. He's not poisonous, and he's in a cage. He doesn't get loose and just run around the house. But it's ridiculous. But we, think, we, don't take, we don't take sin seriously. We, we think, oh, I got it under control. I can handle it. And it was a disappointment to me as I tried to help this young man understand that that one area, that one area that's not surrendered, that you're not victorious in, that you've not submitted to the Lord, it can affect every other area. God wants us to be mature, fully equipped, grown up in our faith. We must submit to the Lord. During our trials, we question, we struggle, we ask why, and I don't think it's wrong necessarily to ask why. It's important that we ask in the right spirit. I don't think that we should ask why in an accusatory way, in a disrespectful way, in a way that accuses God of some injustice, of some unholiness, of God not knowing what he's doing. I think it's wrong to ask in that kind of spirit, but we see in Job there was some why in his response to the Lord and to his friends, three of whom did not give him good advice. Finally, the fourth friend gave him some good advice, but when God asked, excuse me, when Job asked God why, God answered with chapter after chapter of revelation of himself. We surrender our will. We trust that God is going about his business in our life, doing good, that he is always holy, that he is always just, that he is always righteous, even in our difficult times, that he is working for our good and for his glory. As we surrender our will to the Lord, as we allow God to produce within us patience and this perfect work, this work of maturity, that we might be mature, complete, entire, wanting nothing, fully equipped, We recognize that our life, as we handle this trial, as we count it all joy, as we persevere, that we have an influence on others, that we have the opportunity to help others, that we can be an example to others. I think of this often as a parent. I've thought of this often. I remember a professor in college who really helped me with this years ago, and I began to change my perspective because as my children were being born, I realized if I respond the wrong way to the trials in my life, what's it going to do to my kids? And as I was dealing with stressful circumstances, sometimes I'd get that loving, gentle nudge from my wife. And it would be that, check your attitude. 
kind of nudge, if you know what I mean. That check your attitude kind of statement or elbow. And it was a reminder to me that I'm not having the joyful attitude. I'm not counting this with joy. I'm not having the understanding mind, and I'm not surrendering my will. No wonder I'm not being a good example. How can I edify others? How can I be an example to my children? How can I lead a group of people, a group of teachers, or, or feed the flock of God if I'm falling apart, if I'm not handling suffering and difficulty in the right way? Think about our example to others. Think about our influence. God wants us to edify others, even in our suffering, even in our trials. He wants us to be an example to other believers, to our children, to be, in a sense, a support group for others who are going through difficulty, and we can help them, and we can encourage them, and we can strengthen them along the way and help bear each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and loving our neighbors. What about the evangelism of the lost? When we turn to alcohol, drugs, And immoral pleasures, when we become despondent, how do we have an effective evangelism during our trials and our tribulations? I think of my, the testimony of my mom is my dad was dying of cancer and she would go into work and we were trying to figure out how to handle all this. He was in hospice care at home and my mom was trying to work hours and be the caregiver and we had a gentleman in our church who was coming in and and we were trying to put in hours there with my dad and back and forth. And, and my mom would go into work and people would come to her and they'd say, how are you handling this? By this time, I would be driven to drunk, as they would sometimes say. How do you go through this so well? And the answer my mom would give is that God has given me peace. God has given his grace. It would be opportunity for her to share the gospel and to be a testimony. How many times do we have that? opportunity that God gives us and we see God even bringing people to himself through a difficulty through a hardship because we have glorified the Lord by his grace through our trial through our tribulation and we've seen God do a work of evangelism through us and in spite of us as we go through some sort of suffering or trial because we have counted it all joy we have had an understanding mind we've known we've evaluated we've considered it and evaluated it by the promises, the principles, the commands of the word of God, and we have surrendered our will, and we have let him do his work. God wants us to do his will from the heart, Ephesians 6 in verse number 6 says. Sometimes we are like that child who says, I may be standing up on the outside, but I'm sitting down on the inside. And that child had been told to stand up, but in their spirit, they're still sitting down. Outwardly, they're obeying. They stood up. And sometimes we can have that kind of cantankerous spirit. We're not really surrendered in our will as the Lord is working in our lives. We're still kind of sitting down in our own stubborn and obstinance in, our, in the inside. But God wants us to do the will of God from the heart. Just think of Jonah. Did he eventually do the will of God? Yes. He ran away for a while. Got swallowed by a great big fish, and I don't know about you, but I wouldn't want to be involved with stomach bile and vomit from a great fish. But even through all that, did Jonah go eventually to Nineveh and preach the gospel and see great revival? Yes, but where was he at the end of the book of Jonah? Complaining about a plant that wasn't giving him enough shade. Worried more about a plant than he was about the souls of those people in Nineveh. Did Jonah have a surrendered will? God wants us to do the will of God from the heart. And notice here in James 1, we go down to 
Verse 9, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted, but the rich in that he is made low, because as the flower of the grass he shall pass away. And then the illustration continues there in verse 11. And what is ultimately God saying by the inspiration of his word, as James writes, James is taking us to a perspective of the rich and the poor. And he says, you know what, no matter how rich you are, no matter how poor you are, everyone is going to go through trials. How do we handle our trials? Does wealth exempt us from trials? Some people think if I can just be rich enough, if I can just be wealthy enough, if I can just have enough stuff, then all my problems will go away. But even the unsaved will say that wealth, that riches, that money doesn't buy happiness. When you really corner them, some of them will make excuses, but sometimes you'll finally hear someone who is unsaved, who has tried to live for their own selves and for their own pleasures and make all kinds of money, they'll eventually admit that, yeah, money didn't make me happy. Money couldn't buy me love. Money couldn't buy me whatever it is that they sought that they could find satisfaction in, that they thought could exempt them from suffering. It didn't work, and that's what James is saying. Let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. Sometimes it's the one who is poor that ultimately humbles himself and depends upon God and trusts God to raise him up. But the rich, because they depend on their riches, and they don't look to God, they never seek to depend upon God, to trust Him, to look to Him in faith, what happens to them? Their wealth disappears. Their their lives become like the flower of the grass that passes away, like the new moon grass out there, and the sun comes and burns it up, or the flower that comes out and blooms, and then the sun, especially in an arid desert environment that... Many of them were living in, in the first century, they understood exactly what James was saying, is that flower bloomed, but in that hot desert air, that flower fades away. The grace of the fashion of it perisheth, so also shall the rich man fade away in his ways. The rich man too often depends upon his riches, his wealth, his fame, and his fortune, instead of depending upon God and his trials. And I don't mean this in the wrong way, I don't mean this in the condemning way, But I see sometimes these professional athletes, one of the greatest basketball players ever to play the game the other day, his son went into cardiac arrest. And as I'm reading the article, and there's blame and pointing this, and and I, I couldn't help but think, and I even caught myself praying for this man because I thought, you know what, maybe God, with all this man's money, with all his fame, with all of his fortune, he couldn't stop his own 18 year old son, what seemed to be in the prime of health from going into cardiac arrest. And God spared that young man's life, but I couldn't help but think, and I even found myself praying for him, that he would find Christ, that he would look to the Lord, that he would come to saving faith. His money couldn't buy his own son's health. Now, he may think he can buy his son a place in a starting lineup in the NBA. I don't know. Maybe he thinks because of his last name, and don't we see that in politics? I know I'm going to get myself in trouble. I don't want this to be a political stump jump. But don't we see people thinking they can buy their way to fame, to fortune, to happiness, to places of title, to places of preference and popularity, to places of leadership and influence and dictatorship, by money, by war? 
The wealth of the rich man doesn't buy him an exemption from suffering. Oftentimes it condemns his soul because he's trusting in his own riches, in his own wealth, in his own material possessions. And James, he deals with it very clear and very straight here. He says, let the brother of low degree rejoice in that he is exalted. He's humbled himself. He's trusted God through his trial and he's found God is able to exalt him. Bring him through. Help him endure. Grow his faith. But the rich, trusting in themselves and their money and their possessions, become like the flower that perishes. A surrendered will. And then fourth, we see the word ask in verses 5 through 8. We see the principle of believing hearts. A believing heart. Verse number five. If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and upbraideth not, and it shall be given him. What should we do in our trials? We go to God. We pray. We ask. We ask him who gives us wisdom, who helps us evaluate our trial, consider it, and to count it all joy. Wisdom is the practical application of correct knowledge. It's the right use of knowledge. One example might be that knowledge can take something apart, but wisdom is the ability to put it back together again. Wisdom helps us have the understanding mind. Wisdom helps us have the joyful attitude. Wisdom helps us to have a surrendered will. As we ask God, and He, as we ask in faith, fully trusting Him, as we look to Him in faith, fully trusting Him, He giveth. Wisdom, he says in verse 5, liberally, and upbraideth not, holdeth it not back, and it shall be given him. This is according to God's will. This isn't, again, a word-faith kind of wisdom, a word-faith kind of prayer, a word-faith kind of asking where we somehow, with our own words and our own faith, we determine our own destiny and get anything that we want, whenever we want it, however we want it, as if God is some genie in a bottle, as if God is some supernatural force that we can manipulate for our own pleasures and desires. No, this is a surrendering to God, a trusting in Him and looking to Him for faith, for wisdom, for direction that God would help us to count our trials, our diverse temptations with joy, to have this understanding mind, to have this surrendered will so that we evaluate our trials and respond in a way that pleases God and makes us more like Him. We see there in verse number 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. A double-minded man doesn't ask in faith in verse number 6. Notice in verse number 6, there's the nothing wavering. The example of the waves of the sea, of the wind that drives the waves, and it's back and forth, up and down. You've all probably been to the beach and been involved in... Uh, some of the waves and the back and forth and the in and out and the way the waves are vacillating. That's not the way we should be in our trials. We're to ask God for wisdom. And we're to do so in faith, not like the waves of the sea driven by the wind. Or as Ephesians talks about, as children tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine. Instead, we're to be stable Not as a double-minded man, we're to ask in faith. And we are to trust Him. Double-mindedness, again, has to do with wavering between faith and unbelief. Trust and doubt. Is God good? Is He really in control? Does He really know what He's doing? Is He really 
using this for my good? And besides, why do bad things happen to good people? When really we should ask the question, why do good things happen to bad people? James 4 and verse number 8, we read, Purify your hearts, ye double-minded. So maybe in our double-mindedness, we actually need to come to Christ with a surrendered will, counting it all joy with an understanding mind that we might have our hearts purified, that we might be single-hearted in our devotion and our dependence upon the Lord. And maybe that's one of the reasons for the suffering is because we're depending too much on ourselves, too much on our things, too much on our own intellectual wisdom and our education and our wits and all the things that we count so near and dear to ourselves that when the Apostle Paul came to that realization in Philippians 3, he said, I count all things but loss. He counted them but dung. And maybe we are too self-dependent And that double-mindedness comes because we are too dependent on ourselves. And even in this passage, we can make an application to those who are unsaved. Yes, as believers, we know that James is writing to the tribes, the 12 tribes scattered abroad. He's writing to Christian Jews. But we know there are some unsaved who are affected by these Christian Jews and by the inspiration and the providence of the preservation of God's word. He's declared these truths for us in his written word, his preserved word. And as saved people, yes, we need to be careful that we're not double-minded, that we're single-focused, single-minded in our faith and trust in Christ through our trials. But maybe there is an unsaved person sitting here today and you're finding yourselves, yourself tossed to and fro by trials and tribulations, constantly back and forth, and you're like a wave of the sea that's being pounded against the shore. And maybe God is trying to get your attention. And he's trying to get you to quit depending on yourself for your salvation, for finding your way through life. Quit depending on all your money and your abilities and all the things that you know and that you think that you can do. And I've talked about this before. Sometimes my frustration would be that the smartest kids who graduate from our high school with nearly perfect scores on the college entrance exams would sometimes be the furthest away from God within a year because they were smarter than God. They were smarter than all the teachers. They were smarter than every preacher. They were smarter than every person, including every 66 book of the Bible. They were smarter than God himself. And it was so disappointing. And they were double-minded. They were constantly vacillating, doubting, wondering. I wonder if this is true. I wonder if they're... When God says, trust me, I've revealed myself In my word and in my son, Jesus Christ, and through creation, the conscience and the soul, trust me, believe, come to me in saving faith. As believers, this passage speaks to us to come to Christ, to depend upon him in sustaining faith. But for the unsaved, maybe your double-mindedness is an indication of your unsaved state. You need to come to Christ in saving faith and ask him for the wisdom that comes only from the Lord instead of trusting in your own wisdom. But us as believers, we are reminded that in our trials, we go to God. We look to Him. We depend upon Him. And we see in verse number 12, as we come to the conclusion of this passage, we see this word blessed. It reminds us a little bit of Matthew chapter 5 and the Beatitudes. And James concludes this passage with a Beatitude. Blessed is the man that endureth 
temptation. That perseveres. We see in verse number 12, For when he is tried, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. God wants us to enter into glory with a fullness, with a blessedness, with a joy, with a hearing from the Lord himself, well done, thou good and faithful servant. The crown here is a reference even in the Greek world to that wreath that would be put over the winner's head. I'm an Indianapolis kid and many years I've watched the Indianapolis 500 and they put a wreath over the winner's head. It doesn't have the meaning and the symbolism that maybe it, it did years ago or in the, like it did in the first century, but the crown of life speaks to that wreath of victory that's put over the head of the winner of the particular comp- competition or contest. And we're not in contest and competition against each other in the Christian life, but we are ultimately looking for the finish line to finish our course with joy in the ministry, like Paul said, to fight a good fight, to keep the faith, to finish our course that God has called us to, to the race of life, to the calling that he has given us and be faithful in it through the trials, through the temptations, through the sufferings. And we endure. We allow God to do his work. We count it with joy. We have an understanding mind. We have this joyful attitude. We ask God for wisdom. We surrender our will. And then God desires then, as we are faithful through the trials and the temptations of life, he desires then to bless us, to reward us with the crown of life, a wreath over our head in glory, in a sense, that speaks to our enduring for God's glory, to allow God to produce within us Christ-likeness, so that in our stewardship of this life, we have been faithful in every single way and in everything that God has given us, and in every circumstance that he has called us to or brought us into. May we have this desire with the right joyful attitude, with an understanding mind, a surrendered will, asking God for wisdom, that in our trials, in our diverse temptations, in our various sufferings, we can have the blessedness of enduring that temptation and receiving the crown of life which God hath promised, which the Lord hath promised to them that love him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these principles, these truths that help us so much as we go through life. And Lord, it seems at times that circumstances are overwhelming and there's so much hardship and difficulty. But Lord, we find joy. We find rest. We find satisfaction. We find contentment in you as we count it all joy. And that attitude of joy, of counting, of considering, of evaluating it, by your standards, with an eternal perspective, Lord, you help our mind and understanding. And Lord, as we surrender our will, and Lord, as we ask you in faith, we trust that you will give us wisdom to go through these trials in such a way that we give glory to you, that we edify others, that we are a right example, and you give us opportunity even to evangelize. Lord, I pray even this week that you will help us to be an example of Christ-likeness, 
to show forth the love of God even through the difficulties that we face. May you be glorified in it, we pray.